Welcome to Military Dragnet. This is an addendum or a deep dive, if you will, into the question of can the military court-martial civilians legally? Um, this case was argued before the appellate courts in 1960 about previous cases uh, of court-martials of civilians and this has come up quite often in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq recently. I've been kind of fascinated with the uh, ability of the US military to court-martial civilians who have never joined anybody's military. And so without further ado, I'll let you listen to a couple of hours of arguments before the appellate court by the actual attorneys and you'll hear the actual judges. This is a transcript of those hearings. Number 21, McElroy, Secretary of Defense of the Alp Petitioners versus United States on the relation of Dominic Bibliard. Chief Justice, may it please the court. This habeas corpus proceeding here on writ of certiorari to the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit is the first of four cases now before the court involving, once again, Article 211 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which was before the court two years ago in the Covert case, and which Congress, in which Congress sought to empower <coughs> courts martial with jurisdiction over dependents and employees accompanying and serving with the armed forces overseas. Of the four cases before the court, uh, the first, third, and fourth involve employees, and the second case, the immediately succeeding case, involves a dependent. Uh, of the four cases, all involve non-capital crimes except the last, which is a case of a civilian charged with a capital crime. Yes, sir. Uh, a person who is not enlisted or commissioned in the armed forces, in that sense. He is an employee of the Department of the Air Force. Uh, respondent is an a contractor on a picture job. No, sir. The respondent. Well, that is our position. Uh, respondent. Uh, no, sir. I, I will try to con uh, limit our our position to people serving the armed forces overseas. They were all, yes, they were all civil service employees of the particular armed service involved. They were non-employees of contractors or anybody else. That is, they were directly employed by the federal government in each of the three employee cases. They were all civil service employees. 
Well, I say civil service generally. The respondent here was what's called a wage board employee, as so many are in the United States. He was paid on an hourly basis. But he was in the, he was in the same uh, situation as comparable employees in the United States would be at uh, Air Force installations or Air Force posts here in this country. Uh, in the third case, Wilson was also a civil uh, service employee. Of the, no, he was a regular civil service. Uh, employee and the yes, uh, he had I think a GS, whatever it is. And in and in the fourth case, the Grisham case, he was an auditor with the Corps of Engineers stationed ordinarily at Nashville. He was on six months temporary duty with the Corps of Engineers in Orleans, France. He also had a GS number. Yes. Mr. Davis, is there anything in the nature of the employment or in the duties? of any of these three uh, employees that would cause you to make any distinction between the two insofar as the legal principles uh, in this case are involved? The three, sir? The three employees. Yes. Well, no, there are, except the one factor that the, in the Wilson case, which is the third case, he was stationed in Berlin, and we make a separate argument as to the status of Berlin as uh, uh, being a place where the law of war applies, and so that he could have been, he, he could be court-martialed under that basis of jurisdiction. Otherwise, there is no difference as to the three employees. Uh, Guadalajara, uh, the respondent in this case, journeyed to Morocco, and he there uh, became an employee of the Air Force Department at Nusser Air Base, which is near Casablanca and Rabat in Morocco. He was an electrical lineman charged with maintaining and keeping the lighting on the airfields there. And of course, since this was an airfield, that was an important and significant post. Uh, he had uh, uh, the, all the status and, and privileges and benefits of, of persons accompanying the armed forces overseas. That is, although he himself lived in Casablanca in an apartment, he had a quarters allowance, just like uh, many officers do, many higher grade non-commissioned uh, officers who uh, don't live on the post but live in a nearby town. He had commissary privileges, exchange privileges, officer club privileges, medical and mail privileges. The offense with which he was charged, to kept, together with two enlisted airmen, was the, was the offense of larceny and conspiracy uh, to commit larceny of government-owned goods. There were some leatherette goods and olive drab fabric material owned by the government, the Air Force, on this base, the Nusser Air Base Depot in Morocco. And he was charged, together with these enlisted men, with this, these two uh, counts of larceny and uh, conspiracy to commit larceny. Under the uh, manual for courts martial, the maximum penalty is five years for this, these offenses. And there was a trial held. He did object to the jurisdiction of the court martial over him. He was found guilty on both counts, together with the airmen. He was sentenced to three years confinement and a $1,000 fine. Were any local civilians involved? Yes, local civilians, non-Americans, were involved. They were not tried, Mr. Justice, by the court-martial. There was some suggestion that they were tried, but I cannot actually say whether it was true by the local Moroccan courts. There was apparently, from the court-martial record, a ring which involved these three, uh, the two airmen and this employee and some local civilians. This was a conspiracy trial or for the substantive offenses? There were both, a substantive offense of larceny and conspiracy to commit larceny. And there were allegedly uh, local civilians who were parties to the conspiracy? Yes. 
uh, on review, his sentence was cut down to two years and the fine was eliminated. And the United States Court of Military Appeals denied a petition for review. He brought habeas corpus here in the District of Columbia. Uh, meanwhile, I should say, he was brought from confinement in Morocco here to the United States, uh, pe pending this habeas corpus proceeding. The district court Five years, sir. Five years. Uh, he was not discharged by the district court, and he took an appeal to the Court of Appeals. Pending his appeal to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals granted him bail since the spring of 1958, and he has been on bail since that time. The Court of Appeals reversed the judgment of the district court and ordered that habeas corpus should issue. It did not do so on the constitutional grounds which were mooted so much before the court in the covert case. The Court of Appeals held that the statute, Article 211, was inseparable, and therefore that the, its application in the covert case having been shown to be invalid, the whole of the article fell, and the court did not have to decide for itself whether it was invalid as applied to this employee charged with a non-capital offense. I shall, of course, argue that that was error. Uh, as the court recalls, the, in the covert case, the court, this court had before it two dependents, not employees, charged capitally. And by virtue of the division of the court, the only decision of the court in the covert case was that those two dependent servicemen's wives uh, charged capitally could not be constitutionally tried by court-martial. Uh, as the court will recall, there was no opinion for the court. Mr. Justice Black uh, rendered an opinion in which three other justices joined. And I mentioned to the court that in that opinion, Mr. Justice Black reserved the question of whether there might be other people not in uniform and not enrolled or enlisted who would be subject to court-martial jurisdiction. Mr. Justice Frankfurt and Mr. Justice Harlan very specifically limited their concurrences to the subject of, of dependent wives charged capitally. So we think that the covert case leaves open for this court the question of the coverage for court-martial jurisdiction of all employees, those charged non-capitally, as in this case, or capitally, as in the fourth case to be heard tomorrow. And it also leaves open, we believe, the question of dependence charged non-capitally, as will be the situation in the case to be heard immediately after this one. We certainly think that that, that is certainly true. Yes. I, I, will, I will turn immediately to the question of separability, which is the ground on which the Court of Appeals went. And as the, as the Court knows, this Court has uh, frequently stated that a statute is separable if the invalid parts are not so intertwined with the other parts that they bring the whole thing crashing down like uh, Samson brought the temple down uh, in the Bible. The problem of separability? Yes. That's none, of the, none of them did. That's right, sir. Uh, Are you going to draw anything out of them on this subject? Yes. Uh, on, on the subject, I think that the, I think a certain inference can be drawn, Mr. Justice. Don't 
Now, that both you and, and Mr. Justice Harlan carefully limiting your concurrences to the situation then before the court gave certain rise to the, the very uh, great possibility that the statute might be valid as applied in other circumstances, not then before the court. Forgive me, I suggest you carefully limit yourself to what opinion limits themselves. Taking that advice, Mr. Justice, I go on to the... To the... <laughs> to the... Uh, uh, provisions of Article 211 itself. Uh, the, the court in this discussion of separability has indicated that light can be drawn from the wording of the particular statute and also from the presence or absence of a separability clause and the explicitness of the separability clause. We have both factors here. We have a statute on page 3, Article 211 of the government's brief, which is not a general statute which says all persons abroad, all American nationals abroad shall be subject to court-martial, but is a specific statute, page three of the government's brief. A specific statute which covers three classes of persons, persons serving with, employed by, or accompanying the, the armed forces overseas. In covert, the court was dealing only with persons accompanying the armed forces overseas. It was not dealing with persons serving with or persons employed by. Immediately under that, in the government's brief, there is the separability clause, which, as the court will see, is a very explicit one. It, it has two parts. It provides that if a part of the act is invalid, other parts that are severable shall remain in effect. And then it provides that if a part of the act is invalid in one or more applications, the remaining applications, if severable, shall be held to be valid. So that we think you have the very strong direction and guidance from Congress in this very explicit separability clause, and you also have the very uh, the carefully delimited or the carefully separated phrasing of Article 211 itself into different categories of persons. Yes, it clearly applies, because all the events took place in 1957, after the act went into effect. 54 is when he went to, uh, to, uh, uh, to serve the Air Force, but the, the uh, offense took place in June 1957, and he was court-martialed in August and September of 1957. Yeah. The Grisham case, the last one, uh, and that I think that that may be the early one. Yes. In the essence of your position, that in view of specific severability provision, effect must be given to an applicable severability, unless the court can say that that which fell is so indispensable or indispensably so yes and we say that you cannot say that here because the the categories of the people are different the history of the relationship of those categories to military jurisdiction is different you have to go long way to say it Congress yes mr. justice and uh, I'm here to say that the Court of Appeals was wrong in, in, in doing that uh, one further thing I do have to say on separability is that there is a long and different history of those serving with or employed 
by the armed forces from those accompanying the armed forces, as I shall try to set forth the categories of serving with and employed by have really been in effect for over two centuries uh, in explicit terms, and they were in effect long before uh, the, the court-martial law revision of 1916 or the court-martial revision of 1950. But it was only in 1950 that Congress explicitly put in the category of a company. So you would have to say that Congress, in putting in the, the category of a company which, with which the court dealt in covert, wanted also, if that turned out to be invalid in a certain application, to bring down also the, the old jurisdiction which had been exercised, we believe, for over two centuries before the word accompanying was inserted in the uh, court-martial uh, article in 1916. For these reasons, we don't think that there's really any substance to the position that the statute is so inseparable that the court can fail to reach the constitutional issue in this case. And there is no other issue aside from separability other than the constitutional issue. Our general position on constitutionality is that this statute, as applied in this and the succeeding cases, uh, stands on Article I, Section 8, Clause 14 of the Constitution. That is, the provision for Congress to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. I shall try to develop that, but at this point I would like to say that the court has consistently recognized, not only in the recent cases of Toth and in Mr. Justice Black's opinion in the covert case, but in the earlier Hawaiian court-martial case of Duncan against Kahanamoku, that persons who are not members of the armed forces, not enlisted or commissioned, do not wear a uniform, can be covered in appropriate circumstances under court-martial jurisdiction. Mr. Davis, uh, is the particular category here, it's under 211, uh, <coughs> employed by, isn't it? It's not yes. serving with. Well, it's both, Mr. Justice. Uh, people who are employed by are also serving with. The, the, the reverse is not true. That is, a contractor employee would be serving with the armed forces, but he would not be employed by the armed forces. In these particular so cases... this petitioner comes under, you say, uh, each of those two Each categories. of those two categories. We think that Clause 14 is sufficient to uphold the constitutionality of Article 211 as applied in this case. We think that in the light of its history and its purposes, uh, it is unnecessary to invoke the necessary and proper clause. But we would evoke, invoke it if it were necessary to do so, because we think that the necessary and proper clause does uh, apply to the court-martial clause, to Clause 14. Uh, we, of course, believe uh, as the court indicated in covert, that consideration has to be given to the matter of jury trial and to the Fifth and Sixth Amendments, and that the Constitution has to be considered as a whole in determining whether Article 211 is valid as applied in this and the other cases. And we have three bases of our argument that the Constitution does permit what was done here. And the first is the historical basis with which I shall try mainly to deal. And the second is to show that there is a need for this type of military jurisdiction in the world today with American bases and, and posts overseas, and that it is appropriate to subject the persons in these cases to such type of jurisdiction. And the third head of our argument, the third head is that there are no acceptable alternative methods for dealing with delictions and crimes committed by these people. On the matter of the history, and we think the matter of history is significant 
because it gives content to the constitutional phrase land and naval forces. We think you determine how, what land and naval forces meant at the time the Constitution was adopted and what it means today by seeing the history as it's developed since the 17th century. Uh, and I should like at the beginning, if I may, to give a, a general picture or survey of what we think the history shows. I, I have four points to make. I'm not certain I will be able to develop each of them as I go along, but I would like at least to put before the court the four uh, general points that I think are important in this case. And the first is that from at least the middle of the 18th century, at least the middle of the 18th century, there has been what I think is a consistent legislation and practice covering court-martial jurisdiction over service-connected personnel, service-connected personnel, particularly employees of the type involved in three of these cases, but not solely over those employees. There's been legislation, we think, for two centuries. There's been consistent practice, not every year, but over the period of time. And the second general proposition I'd like to put before your honors is that there was no general hostility at the time before the Constitution was adopted and at the time of the adoption of the Constitution and after the Constitution was adopted to this type of court-martial jurisdiction, that is, jurisdiction over service-connected personnel. There was hostility, and this is the hostility upon which our opponents rely almost exclusively. There was hostility to the notion of court-martial jurisdiction over inhabitants, generally not service-connected personnel, people who were living in the area of a fort or a garrison or uh, uh, around hostilities. There was hostility to that kind of court-martial jurisdiction. But there was no hostility, we believe, to ju court-martial jurisdiction over service-connected personnel. And further, there was actually so much legislation and so much actual practice of court-martial jurisdiction over civilians as a whole including service-connected personnel, witnesses before court-martial, and even inhabitants generally, particularly in times of hostilities, that we think it cannot be said that there was a, a repugnance or a rejection at the time of the Constitution's adoption to the notion of a civilians being subjected to court-martial jurisdiction. We think that that general proposition does not withstand historical analysis. Davis, when you refer to service-connected personnel, do you draw a distinction between dependents and civilian employees? Uh, we do not, Mr. Justice. Uh, I just wanted to understand no, what you're yes. asking. Uh, I am, three of these cases do involve employees, I understand that. but we do not draw a distinction. We think that there are much, many more uh, greater instances of actual court-martial jurisdiction exercised over employees, and there are many more. But we think that the exercise of this jurisdiction also goes to show that today jurisdiction can be exercised over dependent personnel in non-capital cases abroad because of the needs of today. When you refer to history, you encompass in service-connected personnel both dependents and yes. I, I do. I do. Yeah, I and in your historical analysis as to non-dependents, do you draw any distinction between those employed by the service and those merely serving with them? Uh, I do not, Mr. Justice. Again, I say that the cases we have here are those employed by the services. But we think the history does not draw a distinction between uh, those two uh, types of people. But again, there are more instances of of court-martial jurisdiction over personnel actually employed by the services than by over uh, other people. Though there are instances, of, of, of many instances, I think, of 
court-martial jurisdiction over employees of settlers and other people who are not directly employed by the government. Non-dependent. Uh, Non-dependent service-connected personnel. Mr. Davis, the historic history of the situation uh, make any distinction between uh, time of hostility and peacetime? I, I was coming to that. Yes. That, that, if, I, if I may say that's my fourth point, and I will deal with it, Mr. Chief Justice. My third point is, if I, I would like to stress this because I think that the briefs while on the other side, particularly Colonel Weiner's impressive research in the next two cases, may obscure the fact that the opponents have not been able to bring forth, we believe, one single affirmative statement of the 18th century at the time of the adoption of the Constitution or before or immediately after. Contrary to the position we advocate in this case with respect to service-connected personnel, I repeat that. There is no single solitary statement that we, we know of that withstands scrutiny, which says that employees and service-connected dependents could not be court-martialed at the time the Constitution was adopted. There are general statements of hostility to, to court-martial jurisdiction over inhabitants generally. Oh, yes, there are many of those, but none relating to the particular type of personnel involved in this case. The only two that the opponents have brought forth are a statement by Lord Mansfield reminiscing about uh, a matter in Gibraltar in 1738. We deal with that in our reply brief, which has been filed with the court. And we think we show that in addition to all the other defects, at the time Lord Mansfield was talking about, the British Parliament had not given court-martial jurisdiction over, the, over that kind of, of tradesmen at places overseas, but it did some years later. It did in the 1750s and 1765 and since that time. And the last general point that I come to is the one the Chief Justice mentioned. We think that the history does not make a distinction between wartime or hostilities and peacetime. We think that what the history shows is that the important thing, important factors were two, the direct connection of the person with the uh, armed forces, and two, the need for exercising court-martial jurisdiction over him, particularly the absence of civil jurisdiction at that place. The absence of civil jurisdiction runs like a golden thread for two centuries through this, through this entire history, and if I have time, perhaps tomorrow. In England at the time, about the time of the uh, American Revolution, I'm a little hazy on this, but didn't they have a, a statute that uh, forbade the British military from trying in military courts civilians in the British army who were stationed in this country? Uh, if there was no civil jurisdiction there, I mean, if civil jurisdiction was present, at the same time they had the statute of 1765 which provides that that, that statute to which Your Honor refers did not apply in Gibraltar and Malta and other places beyond the seas where our form of... An American, purely an American precedent, as I remember. I don't believe that, that there was any such uh, statute. I think that the general statute of 1765 applied. That is, where our form of civil, civil judicature did not extend. In times of peace. In all times, yes. In, in all times. In all... Civilian employees of the British Army in America were not tried tribal by the military, British military. Is that right? If there was no form of, of 
civil judicature in force. That is, if there were British magistrates around, they were not tribal. But if, if British magistrates had not gone to, were not in a certain section of the region, they were not tribal. They were tribal by court-martial. We believe that that is the, the real, the historical antecedent of Article 211 as applied to uh, situations overseas where, of course, our form of civil judicature does not extend. Uh, going back to the question the Chief Justice asked me, uh, we think that it's only... Do you cite that uh, British statute here? Yes, it's on page 33... Uh, Page 33 and 53 of, of our brief, Mr. Richard, of our opening brief, in number 21. Yes. Thank you. Are you going to make a, are you planning to make a executive argument? I, I, am not arguing the, I am not arguing the next two cases, Mr. Justice. Mr. Green is. I will return for the fourth case. Uh, and uh, perhaps in, in view of the light, I had better uh, conclude at this point with just one or two more words on the subject of wartime of peacetime, which is an important factor in this case, as the Chief Justice has recognized. Uh, and that is, though in the later 19th century, some writers, and even some of the Judge Advocates General themselves, interpreted this exception, for which I am arguing, as relating to wartime or hostilities, we think that that's a mistake in nomenclature that the real exception is the need for exercising the jurisdiction because there's no civil jurisdiction present at the time. And of course, in the late 19th century, when these writers wrote, civil jurisdiction of the United States extended throughout the continental United States. Uh, Colonel Winthrop and the others did not envisage what would happen after the Spanish-American War of 1898. They thought that since American civil jurisdiction covered the entire continent of the United States, there would be no occasion for exercising this in-the-field type of jurisdiction within the continental United States because there were courts and magistrates everywhere. Uh, I, wouldn't, I do not believe that they intended to foreclose the Congress from adopting the historical concepts of the new situation which they didn't foresee but which arose after the Spanish-American War and particularly after World War Two, when we had large numbers of forces stationed in technical peacetime overseas. That didn't exist in the 19th century uh, in any extent. And I think that the, those uh, decisions and those writings, those, uh, those declarations upon which the other side relies should be limited to the situation with which they were dealing at that time. The armed forces have been going right ahead, trying non-capital offenses uh, in regular course. The answer to that is, is this, Mr. Justice. They have tried many non-capital offenses. They have not tried anywhere near the number of trials that they had before reading against COVID. Let me say this. The number of offenses has continued. Yeah. It has not decreased. Offenses rather than trials. Yeah. The number of, of offenses that have been committed. But the number of trials has decreased because the armed forces have exhibited a great deal of restraint in the, in the uh, uh, bringing of these cases to court. What's happened with the ones who haven't been tried? You mean they just in, in most cases, nothing? nothing has happened. In a few cases, they may have been tried by the foreign uh, state. Has the selection of cases been according to types of offenses? 
I think that there's been no policy directive within the Department of Defense. As each case came up, it was decided. I think under certain guidance from Washington, not only by the local commander. To what extent was the prosecution's decrease? They have decreased considerably, Mr. Chief Justice, as far as we can tell. It's two years, a little over two years, since the Covert case was decided. We have the figures for 1957 and 1958. Unfortunately, we don't have figures for 59. In 1957, the total court-martial prosecutions were 76 of civilians, including both dependents and others. And in 1958, they were 34. What were they before? Yes, in 1956, they were 121. No, I want to stress, I want to stress, Mr. Justice, that the number of offenses has continued. It hasn't even increased. We've received the figures on the number of offenses. The number of court-martials has decreased, but not the number of offenses. I wonder, may I ask this question? Assume that there are 121 cases that should have been tried each of these years of 57 and 58. Were the difference between 121 and 34 tried in the courts of the jurisdiction in which these people were? I would say generally no, sir. Some of them may have been, but on the whole, they were not. They were not tried at all, in other words. Were these, generally speaking, the less serious offenses? I think, on the whole, they were less serious offenses. There was one homicide in which we waived jurisdiction to the German government. They may have included larcenies, Mr. Justice. When I say less serious offenses, I don't mean just reckless driving or exceeding the traffic limit. They may have included some minor larcenies or other things of that type, but there were certainly no capital cases and no homicides, I believe, that were let go unpunished. Has the Army made any recommendation to Congress that it pass a law authorizing the trial? The matter was under serious consideration. Have they made any recommendations? I believe not. I believe not. Have they, in the meantime, broadly increased the laws that they have, arguments in favor of military trials as opposed to civilian? I don't believe the statutes have changed at all, Mr. Justice, since the covert decision. If I may elaborate a bit just on what you said, consideration was given to this subject within the Department of Defense. As I understand it, the solution arrived at was that there was really, from their point of view, no acceptable alternative to court-martial jurisdiction of this type, and that they might be compelled by a constitutional adjudication to seek much less satisfactory alternatives, but they did not think that any other alternative. Now, aren't there helpful moves, as I understand it, in the direction not of trying to have them trialed by civilian courts, but to increase the arguments and improve the opportunity for an expansion to the military courts of that kind? There were no increases in military jurisdiction relating to civilians. I'm not talking about increases in jurisdiction about the effort. I understood you to say they considered it 
and they reached the conclusion there was no alternative except to trial by the army. I know of no effort, other efforts, Mr. Justice, unless perhaps you refer to our increased efforts to do historical research spurred on by Colonel Winters. I would. May it please the court, it is our position that it is not necessary to reach the constitutional question in this case because it is not possible to separate the unconstitutional portion of the statute from what remains. Now, in, at page one of our brief is set forth Article Two of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I say that because it's not set forth any place else in full. And on page two of brief is subparagraph 11, which is the provision involved in this case. Subparagraph 11 is plain and unambiguous. And in order to retain it in view of the covert decision, it is necessary to insert words of limitation into the language. It is necessary to insert after the words accompanying a phrase saying except in capital offenses. You cannot sever the statutory provision by construing a word in a certain way or by deleting words. Now, the decision of this court in the United States versus Reese and numerous other cases holds that inserting words in the statute is prohibited since this is legislation. It's not a matter of enforcing the old law, but you would be writing a new law. Yes, sir. The further, when you consider the congressional intent, we feel that the it would seem clear to us that Congress would not want the remaining portion of subparagraph 11 enforced. As the Court of Appeals put it, the legislature would not be satisfied with what remains. How do we know that? How can we tell? Well, conceitedly, it's only through inference. But I'd like to say, first of all, the covert decision numerically removed 95 percent of the people made subject to subparagraph 11 when they were charged with the most serious offenses. You mean there are more capital offenses than there are all the rest of the offenses? No, Your Honor. There are more. There are 455,000 dependents, but only 25,000 civilian employees. So the incident of capital offenses, I'm ignorant about it, but I should hope that's not that. Well, I'm sure there are. There is. I've never seen a specific breakdown, but of course, the capital cases are fewer. But the number of people which were removed when they were charged with a capital offense, 95 percent of those have been removed by the covert decision. And it would seem, it seems to me that Congress would not. I still don't understand. Why is that so? Because they are civilian dependents. I understand the fact, but why is it? Am I wrong in thinking the important thing is how many capital offenses are committed as against non-capital offenses? No, Your Honor, you're not wrong. But I'm, there are, there are two points. The people who are subject to the. I understand that. But even assuming there are so many more wives than electricians, there are fewer crimes, potential lesser crimes, than wives commit. After all, 
self-inflicted widowhood is not a common profession worthwhile. Now, in addition, the, there is a congressional intent shown through the statute and the legislative history that all of the people covered by subparagraph 11 should be treated uniformly. And this, as a result of the covert case, you, you cannot do. And further, the government's argument in large part in these cases is based upon the practical necessity for having court-martial jurisdiction. Now, the practical necessity, it seems to me, varies from place to place and depending upon the crime involved. It, it is one thing to say it's, it's uh, necessary to have court-martial jurisdiction over a wife or an employee in England, let us say, and it's quite a, a different thing there than it would be, say, in Antarctica. Similarly, the government's arguments for having court-martial jurisdiction to try a civilian dependent or employee for a traffic violation are quite different if a, a security violation were involved. These reasons, these policy considerations in how you would redraft subparagraph 11 are, of course, appropriately left to Congress. As the, the Court of Appeals said in this case, Congress has furnished no guide and no criteria as to how the statute should be broken down. And therefore, it seems to me that this is an appropriate case for the uh, following the rule never to decide a constitutional question unless absolutely necessary. Uh, such a decision by this court would leave it Congress free to rewrite the legislation and include uh, criteria which were related more definitely to the security and discipline and effectiveness of the armed forces. Turning now to the, however, to the constitutional question, the government... In that situation, suppose you had a statute that enumerated certain classes of people who were subject to it, and uh, no question as to those people, it was the statute was all right. Then they amended the statute and, and added another classification, and the courts held that that additional classification was bad. Would that uh, would that negate uh, the rest of the statute? Uh, no, Your Honor, I don't think it would, but I bet... Have we got about that situation? Yeah. No, no, we don't, because the, the, the uh, provision where Congress has uh, said who is subject to the code uh, is some 12 categories, and it's, it's uh, simply one uh, subparagraph that's involved here. And the... Uh, uh, by holding that it's not severable, you don't do anything to the remaining categories in Article 2 or anything else in the Uniform Code of Military Justice. It's simply this uh, uh, subparagraph 11 uh, jurisdiction. Which includes what? Persons serving with, employed by, or accompanying the armed forces. Yes. Now, suppose we held that uh, accompanying them, people accompanying them were not, uh, not uh, included in the statute or could not be included constitutionally. Did that necessarily mean that the others could not be? No, Your Honor, but that is not the effect of Reed versus Covert, because Reed versus Covert doesn't strike out the word accompanying. Reed versus Covert adds to a, that is how you have to read it. You'd have to insert after accompanying, except in capital cases. You see, you, you have to insert words of limitation in subparagraph 11 
to conform it to Reed versus Covert. If Reed versus Covert had said you couldn't try persons accompanying, then Your Honor's question is quite true. You would just be striking the word accompanying. But that isn't the situation. You have to insert words of limitation into subparagraph 11 to retain it. Well, Reed versus Covert didn't say that they could try people who were not charged with capital offenses. It's fairly limited to the facts we have there, namely capital offense. Well, I'm taking Reed. That's quite true. And, of course, my position is that you can't try the others either. But I'm limiting Reed versus Covert to the narrowest ground that there were six justices concurring in. Now, turning now to the constitutional issue, the government refers in its briefs to the uniformed personnel and seems to imply that the distinction between Quagliardo and a member of the services is that he doesn't wear a uniform. At the outset, let me say this is but a small facet of the distinction, and probably the least significant is the fact that he doesn't wear a uniform. In almost all of his relationship to the Air Force, Quagliardo is different from an airman. From the very beginning, as a civilian, when he is employed by the Air Force, he takes an oath to discharge the duties of the office upon which he is about to enter. When an airman enlists in the Air Force, he takes an oath to obey the orders of the president and officers appointed over him according to regulations in the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Now, Quagliardo was in Morocco because he wanted to go to Morocco. He went there on his own, got private transportation with an ordinary passport. An airman in Morocco was in Morocco because the Air Force sent him to Morocco, and he came, of course, by government transportation without a passport. In Morocco, Quagliardo lived in the city of Casablanca in a private apartment just the same as any other civilian in Casablanca. The airman lived on the base. I should point out that Casablanca is by no means analogous or comparable to the frontier or the wilderness cited in much of the government's argument of these early cases. Casablanca is a modern city. It has courts, policemen, and the Nourassour Air Depot is in proximity to Casablanca very much as Washington National Airport is to the city of Washington. At different bases of the United States throughout the world, are there bases where the government has housing facilities for civilian employees attached to the base? I don't know, Your Honor. I imagine that some places there are, though. I'm sure that some places there are. You couldn't make the picture turn out of that. No. I think you have to examine the whole relationship. Now, of course, the airman is paid a monthly salary, and the salary is uniform throughout the world. Quagliardo was paid an hourly rate. He got overtime, and actually his wage rate varies from place to place throughout the world. The government makes much of the fact that Quagliardo's duties were the same as an enlisted man in the Air Force. 
Now, I, of course, concede that the Air Force has electricians, has enlisted men who are electricians and who would do the same sort of thing as Bradley Ardo. But these enlisted men had considerably other duties to perform. Besides being an electrician, they are military people. They march and they drill and they prepare to fight. As the, uh, the, as the commander-in-chief, the president has promulgated a code of conduct which says that they are American fighting men ready to give their life in defense of their country. Now, you can't say that about Guadalajara. Guadalajara was over there to work as an electrician. It's quite a different relationship. Probably the most significant part, the distinction between Guadalajara and an enlisted man, is that an enlisted man, or anyone in the service, is constantly under restraint. He cannot come and go as he pleases. If he wants to leave the base, he has to get permission. Guadalajara, on the other hand, has a job. He comes to work from, shall we say, nine to five. Outside of that, his life is his own. He isn't regulated by the Air Force, where, contrasted to that, the uh, airman in the Air Force is regulated. Continually he is regulated, and he is continually under restraint. He has to have permission. If Guadalajara decided he wanted to go fishing, he goes fishing. There's no civil or criminal liability attached to it. He simply takes, takes off and loses a day's pay. If an enlisted man decides he wants to go fishing for one day, he's absent without leave, or he's possibly guilty of desertion. And of course, Guadalajara could at any time quit. An enlisted man cannot quit. Well, I don't know how he could desert. Uh, he, he doesn't have that relationship that, uh, that he what could... What you're saying is that he has a right now uh, no law to commit. Go fishing if he wants to and to go to work. But if the army has a right to have subject to military law, why couldn't they subject him to the same kind of AWOL and all the other regular folks? Well, possibly they could, but they would be, he would no longer be uh, in the, have the same status that he, that he has now. He would no longer simply be working for the, for the Air Force. Well, the, no, I, I'm saying this shows that he doesn't have the relationship to the Air Force such that he should be considered the same as though he were an enlisted man. The government's argument is that although he's not a member of the Air Force, he's so intimately connected and his relationship with them is such that he should be constitutionally in the same position as though he were an enlisted man in the Air Force. Well, amended the regulation provided that, uh, that uh, he is But it would seem to me it would. It would. Uh, it would change him into an enlisted man. Uh, I, I would probably. You would, that you would say then that he'd be the same as an enlisted man in everything but formality. Well, it, if you add a few more things to that, uh, uh, you are making him into a member of the armed forces. But, but he isn't. He he, he doesn't. 
he doesn't agree that he will abide by the, uh, the orders and the uh, regulations. All he says he's going to do when he, join, when he goes to work is that he's going to work as an electrician. He doesn't agree to... I, I don't know, Your Honor. I believe there is a civil service form which he uh, signs when he starts work. Uh, this, it's, the, uh, it's referred to in, in our brief, uh, and that's the same form uh, signed by all uh, civil service employees uh, uh, everywhere, not simply abroad. Uh, yes, sir, except, uh, except as he may have certain rights un under civil service, but uh, uh, that is he might have certain reemployment rights. The, the Air Force, I believe, could fire him at any time, but he, uh, because of a reduction in force, uh, in Morocco, but uh, he may have certain rights to, to get reemployed elsewhere if there were a uh, uh, there were a position open. Oh, that's because of civil service. Well, is he under civil service? Yes, sir. He has a wage board uh, classification, and he has permanent civil service status. Suppose there was no change in the law or the regulation, but uh, there was a uh, change in the situation. Well, that they, 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 that such a situation might arise, and the government might say that, but uh, well, he could quit. To, is, is it likely to arise uh, any time? Isn't that why they're there? No, I, I don't think so. The, the, if those situation arose, he would still be, as a civilian, he can quit. He can. They can, The army can. The air force could say, now, if you're going to work here as an electrician, you have to do one, two, three, four. And if he was going to continue, he might have to do those things. But he could quit. He could say, well, I, in that case, I don't want to be an electrician here. I want to go someplace else. And then nothing that the uh, Air Force could do to him. And that's the big distinction between Guagliardo and an enlisted man. The enlisted man can't say, I don't want to do it. But do you think if he was over there and that uh, command was, uh, was attacked, he was the only lineman that they had, that, uh, that he could say, well, I'm not going to do any more duty as a lineman? No, sir, because that would be time of war. Well, it might not be war. It might be rage. Uh, well, I, I, something it, of that kind that falls short of war, but it might uh, it might call for uh, very tight discipline and very tight security for all who are, are connected with the post. Well, I, I, I don't think that the time of war category uh, uh, for instance, at Pearl Harbor, it didn't wait until Congress declared war the next day. The uh, uh, civilians were subject to uh, court-martial right away. 
and I think the same situation would be true in the uh, same would be true in the situation you pose. Well, over in that part of the world, they're not having war, but they are having raids all the time, as I read the newspapers, and people are getting injured, and are getting killed. And I imagine sometimes it calls for, for very, very strict discipline on the part of the personnel of the, of the forces. Would this man be? Well, would this man be subject to well, now, discipline? Now, now, I, I think. I think that the, the answer is this, is one thing, of, of course the base commander uh, has authority to uh, regulate things on the base. The base commander could, could say, you, you can't, uh, we're going to have a blackout and everybody's got to turn their lights out or something like that. That's one thing, but it's quite a different thing to say that the civilian employee can be tried by court-martial for not obeying it. The, uh, the base commander... telling me he had to live on the base. Well, I, he could make it a condition of his employment. You think that's the only control he'd have over him? Just say either either you live on the base or or you quit, regardless of the exigency of the situation. Well, so long as the exigencies did not amount to war. Yes, but I thought that, that's what because, I thought. Because your position. Because you're transforming him into what uh, I conceive to be a civilian. That that's uh, the essence of being a civilian is that he can quit. And if you're 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 changing, Secretary of Defense of the Al Petitioners versus United States, in the relation of Dominic Gugliardo. Mr. Shukit, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court, at the recess yesterday I was pointing out the fact that a soldier cannot quit, whereas a civilian employee such as Gugliardo has the privilege of quitting his employment. And Mr. Justice Black inquired what the situation would be if there were enlistment at will rather than enlistment for a fixed term. Now, the, of course, the, the hypothetical question changes the facts, but even in that situation, the soldier would be subject to discipline and would have, uh, have to obey orders, whereas his situation would be different from Guagliardo, who is simply an employee. The relationship of Guagliardo to the service is simply an employer-employee relationship. In fact, until after World War II, it was never thought that the relationship was such that it should subject him to court-martial jurisdiction. Illustrative of that is the decision of this court in Duncan versus Kahanamokru. In that case, which involved the military's power to court-martial in Hawaii in time of war, the petitioner Duncan was a civilian employee of the Navy who was a shipfitter at the Navy Yard at Pearl Harbor. He was in precisely, had precisely the same status as Guagliardo. The other petitioner was a civilian stockbroker named White. Now, White's crime was uh, embezzling, embezzling some stock belonging to another civilian. 
Duncan's prime, was engaging with, in a brawl with the Marine sentry at the gate at Pearl Harbor Navy Yard. This court said that they were both civilians, not connected with the service and entitled to the rights of civilians. Now, it seems to me that if the Navy could not court-martial Duncan in time of war in Hawaii, it certainly the Air Force cannot court-martial Guadalajara in Morocco in time of peace. Now, I will pass over the uh, historical uh, problem because I think it's necessary to read the historical materials cited in the briefs. I, I don't have the time here, but it, I think that when you read the materials, you will uh, be convinced that there is no historical precedent for this type of jurisdiction. But essentially, the government's case is predicated on necessity. They say that the practical necessity overrides everything else and justifies the jurisdiction. Our position of, is that the necessity is irrelevant. But assuming that the necessity is considered, the government has not made out a case of necessity such as would justify this extraordinary jurisdiction. The government's case for necessity is based primarily on the replies which it received from various military commanders throughout the world, which were reprinted in one of its briefs in the covert case. And this, uh, these replies are adopted again in this case. Now, if you examine the replies of the various military commanders who's which are printed in those briefs, you will see that the primary problem which they have consists of black market offenses and traffic offenses. This, this is over 80% of the number of crimes. Now, it's obvious that a traffic offense is a problem of the host country. It's a, a violation of the host country's laws and will be prosecuted by the host country. Similarly, black market offenses are violations of the host country's laws. They are probably not even a violation of the United States law, and they will be prosecuted by the, the host country. Of course, the United States is concerned that uh, uh, our people, our, any American abroad, not violate the law, and that we are concerned with the economic condition of our allies where we have troops stationed. But this is not primarily the concern of the Defense Department, and it certainly should not give rise to uh, court-martial jurisdiction. Now, the government then points to cases such as security cases uh, involving classified information. These cases are obviously extremely rare. They can very easily be prosecuted in the United States. I say that they are rare not because I have the figures, because the figures have never been made known, but if they were of any real concern to the Defense Department, the Defense Department, after the covert decision, would have gone to Congress and would have had the slight change in the statute, which was probably necessary to make them triable in the United States. And in addition, it, it would seem to me that an offense involving uh, a disclosure of classified information abroad is so serious that it should be tried in an Article III court. Now, the government also contends that uh, cases involving only uh, United States citizens or only property of the United States will not be tried by the host country. They say that the host country won't be interested in it. The, the fact of the matter is that's disproven in the very cases which are before this court now. In Guadalajara, the crime involved uh, stealing property of the United States. The Moroccan nationals who were charged with the conspiracy were tried by the Moroccan government. 
certainly disproving the thought that our allies are not interested in people who steal from the United States. So far as crimes involving only Americans, the, uh, the facts in the Grisham case, which is the fourth case before your honors, will show that the French government was, was quite reluctant to let the, the American military try him. And it had Grisham not been court-martialed, he would have certainly been tried by the French government. Insofar as this argument is relevant on either side, wasn't there a very strong, a powerful feeling in Congress against trials of Americans that could be tried by, by our tribunals, against their being tried under what was a rather, I thought, a rather chauvinistic attitude on the part of many a congressman that you can't get fair trials in, in, in the various host countries? There, there was uh, such sentiment, of course, was voiced in Congress, not at, at the time that the Uniform Code of Military Justice no, no, no. was passed. I'm talking about that's I, the source of the State of the Forces Agreement. That yes, they were sir. very unwilling to give even permissive jurisdiction to the host country. Wasn't there a very strong view about There was, and I, I agree that it's, it's quite chauvinistic, and the, I would point out that in this... That make it less congressional because it's chauvinistic. No, sir. But I would point out to Your Honor that, it, so far as Morocco is concerned, in 1956, the United States government, uh, with congressional uh, uh, approval, gave up its consular court in Morocco, subjecting all, for the first time, subjecting Americans to Moroccan courts. And it would seem to me, this happened in 1956, it would seem to me the government could not now come in and somehow say that the Moroccans dispense an inferior brand of justice or that it's it's wrong to subject Americans to Moroccan courts because we, we, we could very easily have uh, retained that jurisdiction. I think you're taking in a lot of territory when you say very easily. That involves a lot of other factors that are not for our present concern about the whole, the whole problem of capitulation of areas. Yes, Your Honor, but, it, but it's indicative that the Moroccan justice was not so inferior or else... They, I didn't suggest it. As a matter of curiosity, what happened to the defendants uh, who were tried in the Moroccan courts? That is not in the record, Mr. Chief Justice. The, now, the, the government also has no explanation for why employees of the Defense Department abroad should be treated differently from other employees of the United States abroad. Foreign nationals who are employed by the Defense Department abroad, and they are... Uh, a very large number. The government disputes the figure of 188,000, which I found in the congressional record. But in any event, it's a very substantial number. These people do precisely the same work as many, as Guagliardo and many others. They have the same access to our bases as Guagliardo does, and the government has no court-martial jurisdiction over them. And the government, uh, the armed forces abroad, are able to carry out their function and carry out their mission without this court-martial jurisdiction. Similarly, there are large numbers of Americans employed by other agencies of the United States. The, the figure from the congressional record is 60,000, which the government says is inflated. But in any event, it's a very large number. These other departments of the government do not have court-martial jurisdiction. They've never had court-martial jurisdiction. They are able to carry out their functions without court-martial jurisdiction. In, a, in addition... In addition, of course, there are, there are also Americans who are abroad as tourists and Americans abroad employed by private concerns who are, 
as always subject to the foreign country's jurisdiction. I understand you to say there are about 160,000 Department uh, of Defense uh, civilians over there who are not uh, considered uh, subject to uh, court-martial and who are tried by the, the courts of the nation over there? That, that's right, Mr. Yes. It's, uh The figure I had was 188,000. 188. 